CG Pro Podcasts, and tonight it is episode 30. We have Alex Coulomb, and if you enjoy listening to this, you would like to follow us. We're on Facebook in our Facebook group and at becomecgpro.com if you want to know anything more about the CG Pro School. So, yeah, tonight gives me great pleasure to, to welcome Alex Coulomb, a, a wizard in the Unreal Engine and other worlds um, related to well, several things. Uh, Alex is an, an architect turned ex-architect. I stole that from his bio. Um, I thought it was pretty pretty fun. Uh, good little soundbite. Um, but yeah, Alex is a, a an architect, um, very uh, very experienced in the world of Unreal Engine. I had the pleasure of working with Alex at a, a recent broadcast fellowship with with Epic, um, and had a chance to watch him. Uh, a play um, teaching some some people in the broadcast area. No, uh, Alex is the also the CEO of Heaven New um, and a new platform for which I would definitely ask Alex questions about um, for uh, p connecting performers with their audiences and also CEO of Agile Lens, which is a creative studio, an XR creative studio. Um, Alex has done a lot of other things too. So I'll stop there and say, Alex, welcome. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. Cool. So yeah, I'd love to get into to your story and all the many things that you do and are involved in. Um, why don't you start off by telling us um, how, did, how did this begin? I know that you began as an architect and you studied architecture. How? Tell us a little bit about how you ended up transitioning into this other field. Um, I know that architecture certainly relates, but what what would did you um was it something that was kind of a, a, a passion from when you were a child that something that involved architecture and other things and film and how did how did all of this come about? Yeah, uh, great question. So I got started with my interest in architecture knowing that I had a, a very strong creative drive from a very young age. Um, but with a lot of the other things I was playing around with as a kid, uh, music and acting and, and art, um, I realized I was pretty comfortable with what I could do by myself with those particular activities, whereas architecture was something that required school and certification. And uh, what I had read about architecture and, and the perception of architects in the media uh, appealed to me very much. I liked the idea of becoming this, this kind of master builder who could uh, do a little napkin sketch and, and throw that into the air and that would become a building. Um, of course, I was certainly in for a rude awakening, but something that was in my DNA from a very young age was figuring out how to MacGyver different tools at my disposal into um, something new. So I started writing plays, for example, in high school, and I got into the idea of what you might even call projection mapping at the time. Like we had these school projectors, and I wanted to have these very cinematic environments in this little one-act quasi-musical um, I wrote my senior year. And so we were doing all these drawings and all these kind of interactive elements and projecting that around the theater. And that led very quickly into uh, piggybacking on that with a little bit larger of a budget when I went to Syracuse University to study architecture, because then uh, some friends and I ended up co-founding a theater troupe there that originally started just in the architecture department, but then grew out to the rest of the school. Uh, it's called the Warehouse Architecture Theater, still there, which is pretty cool after all these years, because uh, that was 2006. And with those shows also, we were figuring out how to do things like take our you know, cardboard cutout pieces from our study models and incorporating that into our set designs. And we were looking at how to write shows uh, in a way that started to mimic certain kinds of architecture. You'd look at the structure of a piece of a building and see if there could be a corollary to that in playwriting. And um, we were also looking at using real-time technologies, which at the time I, I wasn't using anything like Unity or Unreal, but there were programs like Quest 3D and Experient, which were also starting to be useful both for uh, communicating design intent with my architecture projects and also in, in a theatrical format, you know, ultimately telling a story. That's ultimately what I have always enjoyed doing is telling a good story, whether it is the sequence of moving through a space or uh, having people up on stage writing a bunch of, or sorry, re reciting a bunch of words that are, are pre-scripted. Uh, that all appeals to me very much. 
Interesting. So, so did you feel like um, your work as an architect and that in working in that area, uh, did that feel like storytelling? I know that I know some architects and I've been around them whilst they were studying. I don't know if it's the same in the US where you have to do seven years of, of study. It is. Well, in uh, the program I did, I, I got what's called a BARC, which is a five-year program. And I could have gotten a, a master's with a couple more years of study, but I was pretty satisfied with what I got there. Uh, the storytelling aspect is interesting you bring that up because that is something that I felt from a very early period in my architecture training that was missing. I didn't feel like we were learning how to tell the story of a space. Um, there wasn't a sense of sequence of moving through it from the street into a foyer, into all of the main uh, functional spaces. It was much more just like, what does this look like in plan? Are there golden ratios? And this very uh, Corbusian ideal of what architecture should mean from almost a mathematical and very cold and detached perspective. But for me, architecture has always come to life when people are inside of it and moving through it and engaging with it. And so one of the impetuses for starting to incorporate more animation and interactivity into my designs, even while in school, was to help bring those spaces to life and to tell more of a story than um, what many of the professors, I think, were encouraging, which was, again, like, where's your plans? Where's your sections? Where's your elevations? Maybe a couple renders, but all very static. Right. So there's lots of making sure there's enough toilets per square feet and air conditioning vents, but you, you saw a little more than that and you saw story and world building and that kind of stuff from this medium. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how, how did did you um, work as an architect after this after studying and then kind of transition from there into XR? How did how did you kind of get into this whole mess that we're in? <laughs> it is a bit of a mess. It's a fun mess, though. Um, yeah. When I graduated, a lot of people were asking me, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? Are you working for an architecture firm? And even then, this was 2010, and the architecture industry was being hit pretty hard by the 2008 recession. And I was feeling like even at that point, what I was doing in five years was probably a career that didn't quite exist yet. And something that I'd started to play with a lot more during my thesis in 2009 and 2010 was augmented reality. Um, I had designed for my thesis this insane $5 billion theater that was taking Fort Jay on Governor's Island, which was um, a, a fort that was built there for the War of 1812, sorry, and uh, converting that into a stadium that could put on these incredible immersive theater shows. And as part of helping people understand this very outside-of-the-box piece of architecture, I was using augmented reality with a marker-based approach to show my 3D models and some animations and give a sense of what it was like to move through that whole experience from the moment of leaving Manhattan, traveling there on a submarine, popping up through the middle, and getting this crazy inverted theater-in-the-round experience. And that was something that excited me very much. But of course, at the time, if you looked into higher-end versions of AR and VR, they were uh, prohibitively expensive. So then I did work for a few architecture firms, uh, Raphael Vignoli in New York City, um, Zimmer Gunsel Frasca Architects, a couple others, and then landed at Fisher Dax Associates Theater Planning and Design, which was a very natural fit for me because it's a, a company that specializes entirely in designing theaters, which has been my favorite <laughs> architectural typology for many years, unsurprisingly. And so um, I was there in 2012, and then I pretty quickly heard about the Oculus Rift Kickstarter, and I thought, well, this would be fantastic because I already spend so much time trying to communicate different design options of different seating options, different railings, um, what it's going to be like to have different kinds of performances on stage using these more traditional formats of uh, renders and animations and the tools that the company already have. So immediately when I saw the, the Kickstarter video for the Oculus Rift development kit, that was all about games, but I couldn't help but think, how cool would it be to sit in a theater in any seat that you wanted to and actually feel like you're actually there while a real show is happening on the stage. And so I uh, asked my, my boss, Josh Dax at the time, if it would be okay for us to get a VR headset. And he said, well, can you do something really interesting with it? And I said, yeah, I'm gonna throw our, our theaters into there. It's gonna look fantastic. And so we ordered it and it came in and I had never used a, a quote unquote developer kit before. And so I thought it was gonna be plug and play. I thought I'd like 
throw it on my computer, grab our, our Revit and 3ds Max files and just kind of drop them into some software that it came with. And we would just see our, our 3D models come to life in VR. And of course, that was not the case. And I had to very quickly um, prove to, to Josh that this was not a mistaken uh, level of trust to have in me to, to make this purchase. So I'd be doing like my regular work during the day. And then the moment Josh would go home, I'd be online doing like Unity tutorials and like, how do you uh, optimize 3D models and, and what are draw calls and how do you code in, in C Sharp and JavaScript and trying to add all this interactivity. And he'd ask like every day. So like, yeah, how's the VR headset coming along? I'm going, oh, I, I haven't had a chance to really look at it yet. Like I kind of mm -hmm. gave the impression I hadn't even touched it. Uh, but after I think two weeks, it was finally like, no, seriously, are you going to do anything with this? And I was like, oh, I, I did something last night, like as though it, only, it had only taken a couple hours. And I showed him a, a VR experience where I had taken the Situ Center for Performing Arts, which was a, a theater we were designing over in West Calhoun, China. And I showed him a way where we could cycle through um, jumping to all these different seats in the hall, um, how we could cycle a few different options for what we were thinking for the walls in there, a few different materials. And he was like, that's fantastic. We should do this for everything we ever do. And we were kind of off to the races. And um, I have not stopped using VR almost every day of my life since then. Wow. So there's quite a lot to, to unpack in there. But essentially, do, do, so you were, it seems like you were aware that you needed to kind of nail it with the first presentation uh, to to not show your dabbling, but show like some results and get getting excited. Was that was that the case? Yeah, I, I've always worked best under deadlines and pressure. And I think had I not kind of backed myself into a corner there, I probably would have just had that development kit sitting in my office for weeks and weeks and weeks and never really gotten around to touch it. So the fact that I, there was a little part of me that thought like I could maybe be fired because I was still pretty new at the company um, really made me dive in as, as hard as I could to make sure I could produce something meaningful um, to, to prove the use case that I was imagining. And of course, it wasn't until years later that we really started to fulfill the other um, ideals I had there of actually seeing performances on the stage, but it felt like a pretty good start. So you start, started to visualize the theaters and the theater environments that you were working in. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what, what benefits that brought about and, and what it was like to do that? Because it seemed, seemed like um, there weren't many people doing that kind of thing in that world. Yeah, um, it's funny because when VR first started to become a thing, I think a lot of people equated it mostly to games or film. Um, but from the get-go, to me, it felt like theater. It was spatial and it had proximity and a sense of scale and a sense of presence where just like in a theater, um, when there's performers right there in front of you and everything's happening live, you're in a space and there is a sense of, of liveness to it and you do feel like you're there if it's a, a well-designed experience. And the way that you communicate uh, architecture through VR feels a lot, once again, to bring the, the idea of storytelling back into the fold. It feels like that. Like if you just drop someone into a space and say like, look, architecture, you're missing a lot of opportunities. In the real world, the only time we're ever just suddenly in a space is if we've had like a bag over our head for a while and we've been kidnapped and we're having that pulled off over our head, or if we have like amnesia or something. So to start to, to mimic that progression of, for example, you know, going from the street, understanding the context of a building, going inside of it, moving through different spaces, having a balance between how much of that is up to the user and how much of that is pre-scripted and guiding the eye in very key ways through light and shadow and materiality. Those were skill sets that I found very useful in making meetings as productive as possible because I knew a lot of people who only wanted to use VR for visualizing the finished design and that didn't feel nearly as useful to me as using VR at every phase of the design process. Like start out sketching instead of on a napkin, sketch in tilt brush and gravity sketch and have this very um, open, interpretable, gestural version of the space that you can move through and start to feel that that sequence of moving through the space. And then mask things out in SketchUp or Rhino or some kind of concept modeling tool and then start to add in different design options for um, how the space might start to feel at that concept stage and be in VR while you're cycling between those because you really feel the differences between these different schemes. Then later on, as you progress through, you know, schematic design, design development, and then eventually construction documents, at a certain point, then it makes more sense, I think, to be more photorealistic, to get better lighting, to get better materiality, and really make people feel like they're standing in a real space. So I very quickly wanted to make my models as 
interactive as possible, not just in the freedom to jump to different theater seats or to uh, toggle different design options, but to actively change the design while you're in VR, you know, grab the ceiling and pull it down until it feels right. I'm working with a lot of world-class architects that have a a wonderful um, internal sense of design. So to have someone inside one of these VR experiences I've built start to intuitively adjust the space um, well, you know, sometimes I'd have like constraints in there to make sure everything is still up to code, but to just give a certain amount of freedom for being in the space and making those design adjustments while you're in there at human scale was really exciting and not something that I saw a lot of people doing for a very long time. What was it like for you uh, kind of moving into this? You said you had to learn a lot of things, like a lot of quite technical things um, as far as the development kit, the program, the programming. Um, how how was that for you coming from architecture is not, not known for teaching uh, programming, at least. I know there's some technical aspects to it. But what um, what was your approach to kind of uh, growing that side of your skill set? Sure. Uh, well, I've always been, what's the term, like a kit basher. I've always felt very comfortable grabbing disparate pieces of things and putting them together. Um, I probably first really got into that sort of thing when I was playing The Sims as a kid. And I was very quickly like, how do I download other you know, 3D models of furniture and, and change my character's skins and add mods that can like change all sorts of elements? And most of those pieces I was putting together, I wasn't necessarily coding them all myself, but I needed to figure out how to make them all work in the same experience. Sims, incidentally, I think really paved the way for me to think about uh, BIM, building information modeling and not having lines that represent a wall, but actually drawing a wall. So that also prepared me for architecture school pretty well. So when I I came out of architecture school, I had a pretty good sense of how to create a 3D model. I knew Revit and 3ds Max and Rhino and SketchUp and, and AutoCAD, of course, but I did not know anything really about coding. So the first thing I was doing was I had to start with a goal of what what am I trying to do? And, and early on, it was, I want to be able to jump between different seats. And I was like, okay, well, let me Google or check on Stack Overflow or something for any kind of code that starts to move a camera from point A to point B. And then I learned about like transforms and, and lerping transforms. And a lot of the early work I was doing, doing, I was taking code other people had written and adjusting it or trying to smash it together to work in a way that would be uh, as beneficial as possible to my needs. And when I started to get intimidated by it, I honestly ended up thinking a lot about how my dad taught me guitar because I was very intimidated about learning guitar at first. And my dad was like, look, Alex, you can learn three chords if that's all you want to do and you're going to be able to play millions of songs and i was like there's no way that's true and sure enough i learned like probably gda or something like that i was like there are millions of songs i could learn so what i was trying to do with coding early on was find um those simple chords or you can almost think of like a power chord a power chord on guitar it's like three fingers that can play just about anything that can have a chord progression so i was looking for what is the simplest amount of code I could get the most bang for my buck out of? And that turned out to be just the ability to turn things on and off. I could have 500 things in my scene. And if I was just turning on one of them at a time, that helped me tell stories, that helped me give a sense of design options or um, progression, progressing through the life cycle of a design. I often would have VR experiences where it's like, here's what the design looked like as a sketch. Here's what it looked like six months later. Here's what it looked like a year after that. Here's five options where we came to a crossroads and we picked the third one. And uh, that was something that that really I got a lot of mileage out of. So usually when people ask me, like, where do I get started? And this, of course, is not specific to Unity. It can be Unreal. It can be any kind of um, real-time engine. I say start by learning how to toggle things on and off. Get a big array of things and turn things on in that array one at a time. Good advice, yeah. And um, I think that for anyone out there listening, we have a lot, a lot of people from different parts of the industries um, that relate to CG, um, different levels, different stages. Um, it's it's really interesting to hear your perspective on on not only how you got into the industry, but also how you continue to progress because it's not something that stops. Learning never stops. Hearing hearing your your approach is very kind of uh, engineering-like in a way. It's like simplif- simplify the problem and, and try and get some early success and, and prove something works and then build on top of that. For sure. Yeah, I think it's, it's 
Uh, it's also really interesting in in this new um, way of making movies and interactive experiences. I think that a lot of people um, come into it from either the technical or the artistic angle, but uh, it's it's very empowering to learn both. And I think so a lot of the times people can feel intimidated by crossing that divide into something that they haven't explored as much. Um, do you have any any advice for for someone feeling feeling intimidated by exploring programming or something as technical as that? Yeah, I'll go back to the guitar analogy as well, because I actually had guitar lessons as a kid and I, I got nothing from them. I also had saxophone lessons and piano lessons and, and could count on one hand how many things I learned from all that, because it always felt like a chore. It always felt like something I should know how to do because I have a very musical family and uh, it never felt like something that I wanted to do. So the real turning point for music came when a cooler kid than me in high school was like, hey, Alex, you want to start a band? And I was like, oh, that sounds fun. Uh, and so then I wanted to learn the songs that we were going to play as part of that band. And then it was really fun because I wasn't trying to learn scales. I was trying to learn a particular band or melody. And so similarly, when it comes to diving into some of these new technologies, if they feel intimidating, it's really good to have a goal, to have a particular um, experience that you want to create. Uh, a friend of mine, um, uh, Greg from uh, formerly WeWork, and he'll actually be at Unreal Fest speaking this year. He, for example, when he learned Unreal Engine, he really wanted to create Don Draper's apartment uh, for Mad Men. And so that became kind of this shining beacon for him as he learned Unreal Engine. So everything he was jumping into learning with like blueprints and data smith and importing models and lighting it was all through that lens of how do i make the best version of don draper's apartment and i think that's a really excellent approach like a project-based learning uh, method where you can be very passionate kind of like the way that i know uh, cg pro does a lot of these classes where you got to make a film by the end so you're going to find uh, something in that film that really excites you and you're going to have those deadlines and by the end of that process you're going to probably come out with something that's pretty impressive and you might not have even thought that you could do that in such a short amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, 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 nothing like a deadline for sure. And also, um, as you say, having something to to specific to work on, a specific goal in mind. And also uh, what I found, I got into this through VJing back in the day. That's how I got into computer graphics. And and the wonderful thing about that was having an outlet as well as a deadline. So I had the, the club night I was supposed to make visuals for, but also the outlet, people were going to see it. You know, they weren't a particularly um uh discerning crowd all the time but uh, it was a great place to play experiment and there was a deadline and there was an outlet there was a way to put this stuff in front of people and, and then you got feedback from people and you got kind of excitement based on that and i think i think yeah it's really really good advice what you're describing, by the way, is exactly why uh, there were so many of us passionate about theater in architecture school, because it would take a really long time. Like, obviously, architecture can take many years in real life for uh, a project to be done. But in architecture school, a lot of the time we were doing a semester long project, and that could feel sometimes like it was never going to end. And theater you can get that on its feet so quick. You can have a script and rehearse something for a few nights. And if you want to, you can be ready to perform that in front of a crowd, um, you know, a week later. So having that kind of creative outlet certainly was an absolute blast. And I think saved a lot of us from, from going crazy in architecture school. Right. Yeah. It's a pretty, pretty hard to have an outlet and pretty hard to make a building <laughs> yeah. have that be your outlet. Um, so yeah, that was all a great tip for any architects out there. Go join a theater company. Um, can you tell us uh, some something about um, Heaven You, one of one of the projects that you're one of the your CEO of that company? Can you tell us what you what you guys do? Yeah, uh, let me fast forward a little bit through um, a little more of the history so we, we catch up to Heaven You. So um, sure. Agile Lens was the creative studio that got formed um, with my former boss at Fisher Dax Associates. I was thinking of starting my own company. And um, then he pulled me into his office one day and said, hey, Alex, I feel like you're about to start your own company. And I said, what? No, what makes you think that? And he gave me this very gener generous offer where instead of me having to take on all the risk 
of creating a company on my own. He said, why don't you stay here? Uh, you can focus on all the things you want to do and use all the resources of the firm here, the, the software licenses and the office space and the billing and marketing departments. And I said, that sounds absolutely fantastic. So Agile Lens was formed as an XR creative studio where we've over the years have done a, a very large number of custom projects for clients from, you know, major architecture firms, not just doing theaters, to Intel and Samsung and Magic Leap and HTC for very innovative boundary pushing XR projects. At a certain point when I was doing a lot of uh, live theater, eventually I got to the point where I wasn't even necessarily involved with theater taking place in a real physical space. Uh, starting around 2018, a lot of colleagues and I started to explore much more what would it be like to have a live show that can exist entirely within a virtual realm with no physical theater at all. And we were using a lot of social VR platforms for that. We were doing things in alt space and VR chat and um, high fidelity is where we started, which has since pivoted. Um, and there was a lot of excitement about exactly what I was just discussing. The fact that we could like rehearse something and then a few days later, put on the show and not even having to go to a physical venue. We could have our actors in their pajamas at home and people from all around the world could, could be experiencing it in VR. Like um, something like Mozilla Hubs, for example, is a web-based social VR platform where whether or not you have a VR headset, it, you go to a browser link, you don't even have to download anything and you're suddenly inside that experience. Um, so that was all great. But Heaven You came about because I was feeling very constrained by the fact that social VR platforms are not trying to be a platform for a live show. It's trying to make everyone feel very equal. And uh, in, a, in a live theater show, for example, there really needs to be much more control for the, the host and the performers, and they need to be above uh, the audience in terms of what can happen in the space. That combined with the fact that social VR platforms are all trying to target lowest common denominator hardware, your quests using a mobile chipset, your um, lower end computers, made it so that whenever we created a show, I always felt like there were a lot of compromises in order to get that through. So then I started to build um, a kind of a template in Unreal Engine for what I thought would be kind of a, a really exciting show builder. We, we skipped over the part where I, I started to do more in Unreal Engine, but surprise, I, I really started to love Unreal Engine at some point. And this template I was building was very, very heavy. And I was thinking like, well, this is great. I like the functionality I have here, but anyone who's going to use this is going to need like an RTX 3080 in order to run it. So that's no good. And then um, some friends of mine started to talk about how cloud computing could be an answer there. And that basically meant that we could take this Unreal Engine project, throw it up on the cloud, and then allow anyone in the world to access that kind of like with Mozilla Hubs just through a web link. They just needed to have a good internet connection and not necessarily good hardware. And then suddenly through NVIDIA Cloud XR, we could be doing VR through uh, the Quest and then any other device, whether it's a, a mobile phone or a, a desktop computer, was able to start um, accessing this platform that we've been building out over the last year. So um, the first big show we did was a production of Christmas Carol in December with Actors Theatre of Louisville, which was a great case study for something like this because they're a remarkably talented theater troupe out of Louisville, Kentucky. And so they are typically performing to the, the local audience there, the Kentucky audience who maybe is going to travel uh, perhaps like up to 50 miles to go see a show there. And so to be able to use our platform to show how talented their performers are and writers and directors, and then to reach a worldwide audience for this production of Christmas Carol, where people could be inside VR, for example, and get two inches away from a very talented actor like Ari Tar, who I've, I've known for years, who portrayed Scrooge, was really remarkable because the expressivity you're getting from a metahuman with um, live link face and an X-Sense body capture suit and all that is so far beyond anything you'd be able to do in a social VR platform we really felt like we had something special there for you know the future of live virtual performances. Wow. So so are they running in the cloud and, and pixel streaming down to the devices? That's how it works? That's exactly okay. right. Yeah. So when, when someone wants to work with Heavenue, they say, well, what kind of special plugins do I need? It's like literally all you need is the Unreal Engine pixel streaming plugin. You hit that checkbox and we can host your experience for you know people all over the world. and. Uh, people get pretty excited about that. Wow, that's very cool. So um, how, do, how do people engage with you on that? Do you, um, they just have to get in touch with you through your website and 
suggest their project and you, you talk about them, talk about the project and yeah, You'll notice that the Have a New uh, website right now is still pretty bare bones because we're totally um, bootstrapped. Uh, we, we're doing all these projects kind of on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, we're not yet at the point where like anyone can create a Have a New account. So usually the way projects happen is someone emails us and says, hey, uh, I saw you give a talk or I saw a video about what you guys did with, with X project. We'd like to do something very similar. And then we talk about what that partnership looks like. Because often what ends up happening is in some cases someone says, hey, I'm an Unreal Engine expert, or I, I run an Unreal Studio, and we have an executable that's ready to go. Um, that happened with uh, Showcap Entertainment out of Canada for some work they were doing with um, Seven Fingers. Like We needed to give them very little hand-holding to get their project up and running on Heavenue. But a lot of the other productions we get involved with, there's a very strong artistic motivation to be able to have this, this cloud computing experience for the virtual audience, but they don't necessarily have the digital Unreal Engine uh, experience in tow. So Agile Lens then kind of is able to swoop in as a, a consultant or a creative um, impetus there to be able to help with generating what that experience is going to be, working with the director and the whole production team, where someone who is a traditional costume designer might be sketching like what they want the costumes for the characters to look like. And then one of my very talented artists will hop into like Marvelous Designer and create the, the metahuman fitting versions of those clothes so that that can then be part of the virtual show. Another example of that would be uh, an off-Broadway show we just did called The Orchard, which was a reinterpretation of Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard. And this was with the Arlequin Players uh, starring Mikhail Baryshnikov, who's one of the world's greatest dancers, and Jessica Hecht. And so there was an off-Broadway production of that at the Baryshnikov Arts Center in New York City that you had to physically go to and be there in the space. But then there was also the virtual version that was accessible from uh, the entire world using Heavenue as a platform to access the Unreal Engine uh, digital twin of the theater for some really exciting parts of the show that you really had to be inside Unreal Engine to experience. We could get into, into a larger philosophy about like what makes a virtual show compelling, but one element would certainly be you want to be able to do things inside a virtual show that would be impossible or at least very, very expensive to do in the real world. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. What um, are, they, are the experiences main, mainly based in kind of theater, theatrical productions at the moment? Are you seeing yeah. any other kinds of performances? Um, yes, we're, we're doing some work that I can't talk too much about, but it's in like the hospitality industry where there might be a reason to, for example, have an architectural visualization where you don't want it to feel too empty or barren. So it might be really useful to have live performers in that to help guide you through uh, that whole experience and some role playing for certain kinds of people you might encounter as part of that architecture once it is physically constructed. Um, we've also just seen, yeah, a lot of interest from education in general and everything from teaching um, something like, you know, how to build an Unreal Engine experience to uh, even in, in drama school, like how quickly can someone mock up a production of Waiting for Godot and then throw it up on Heavenue for a bunch of cloud computers that everyone in the class can access to uh, to experience the show. Fantastic. So, um, so Agile Lens would be the studio companion. So if people need help building the experience, Agile Lens comes in as a company that can that can help people facilitate, but they don't necessarily need it if they bring their own experience pre-made. Exactly. That's right. Excellent. How um so how go taking a few steps back, I guess, um it, it seems like in the beginning you started off with Unity mm -hmm. and you were mainly mainly focused there. Um what, what what was it that uh, made you excited about Unreal Engine? Is there was there a moment, an experience, a thing you saw? What kind of woke that up for you? Yeah, um, I, I always feel like I need to point out because I, I talk so much about Unreal Engine now and how much I love it that I did not like Unreal Engine at all the first time I tried it. Probably around four point one, I opened it up and I thought, looks beautiful. I hate the interface. Let me try importing one of my Revit models. Nope, it crashed. Let me try again. Nope, it crashed. And I, I just couldn't get a handle on it at all. So I pretty quickly gave up. And then a few years later, I heard rumblings of something called Datasmith, which is Unreal Engine's way of bringing 3D data from all sorts of DCC um, programs. And I thought, OK, well, if, if that can help facilitate getting um, 
data into Unreal Engine. I'll give it another try. And then all of a sudden, uh, things were working very, very smoothly. At the time, I was doing a lot of uh, architecture visualization for real estate. And it was so easy for me to take these 3ds Max models that were already set up with something like V-Ray and bring it into Unreal and say, hey, it looks like the V-Ray renders, but now it's real time. And when the Datasmith beta was happening, um, I was posting some of what I was doing in the forums. And what I found very quickly was that the the staff of Epic Games was so kind and warm and welcoming. And there were people like Ken Pimentel, um, who's part of the AEC team, who immediately like reached out and was like, Alex, this is very cool. We'd love for you to talk about this more. Do you want to give a talk at Autodesk University? And you know, that year, 2017, um, was absolutely when I, I fell in love with Unreal Engine because I was already going to be giving a talk at Autodesk University that year as part of a, a virtual reality track that Jeff Model, formerly of CG Architect and now uh, NVIDIA, uh, was handling. And so I had a talk where I was already starting to discuss, you know, the the pros and cons and, and, and the different uses of things like Unity and Unreal for VR. And then the fact that Unreal wanted me to give a talk at their booth on the expo floor about my experience with Unreal so far made me feel very warm and welcome. And I met a bunch of people there. And before long, I found that I was being asked to do courses for Unreal Online Learning and to you know do things like fly to Venice for State of Art Academy to give talks on behalf of Unreal Engine there, which was lovely. And before I knew it, I was um, an authorized instructor teaching uh, Unreal Engine courses and, and really enjoying um, engaging both with the community, but then the actual staff over at Epic Games over upcoming features and what I felt would make the engine better. And I've just always been impressed by how much listening actually goes on over there. Right. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And yeah, I echo your feelings about the community aspect of it as well. I think of, of any piece of software that I've used in computer graphics, um, the <clears throat> this Epic probably has one of the most, certainly the most thriving communities. I think side effects do a pretty good job as well encouraging that but the the epic community is pretty extraordinary and and their their commitment to innovation and their uh, listening to to people obviously it's pretty hard i used to be a software engineer so i know it's, it's difficult to do all the things that everyone everybody wants but they certainly seem to do a really great job um at listening i agree with that yeah and it's you want to be a place in a place where people are excited people are supporting each other and challenging each other and yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll also call out briefly the Brockman Hall for Opera, which was a very exciting uh, architecture project because it was one where I was able to very smoothly transition from Unity, Unity to Unreal. This was a project that started in 2015, following kind of the template I was describing earlier, where we're sketching in VR and doing early models. And I was pretty happy with everything we were doing with Unity up to the point where we needed to start making it look much more photorealistic. And to be clear, Unity can look just as photorealistic as Unreal Engine. But for the workflow that I had already set up in there, I was struggling with it. And I thought one day, like, let me just try throwing um, my whole FBX file over into Unreal and just out of the box, you know, with the default post-processing settings and all that in Unreal, I thought it looked beautiful. And the, when I was then able to show that Unreal Engine model to the clients, and give them a better sense of what the final lighting and materiality and those kinds of elements would be. And the, the discussions that started to come up after that were great because we were at that level of design where we could really get into the nuances of color and light and shadow and the tactility of certain kinds of materials where we found that in the Unreal Engine version, when we would lean in really close to something in VR, we could really talk about how something felt. And in some cases, we'd actually use something like a Vive tracker to mock up you know, a railing or something like that. So you actually could see something virtually and then reach out and touch it. So uh, that became a, a really exciting workflow. And then for a while, you know, I've continued to say like, I'll use Unity for when I need to mock up something really quickly. The moment it needs to feel a little bit more polished or a little bit more final, that's when I'll usually be over in Unreal. Do you still do much in Unity or is it more Unreal these days? It's much more unreal. I'm probably still 20, maybe 25% in Unity, just from okay. you know some of the templates that I've built in there that I can still create things pretty fast with. And usually if someone needs a, 
a, a very light project that's going to run quickly on phones and, and a VR headset. And it's more about the interactivity and less about how beautiful it is. Uh, if it's an in, in internal project and doesn't need to be as public facing, that's usually something where I can be like, yeah, I can throw that together in Unity in like an afternoon and output it to five different kinds of devices and it's going to be good enough. But um, if I were to try to do that in Unreal between compiling shaders and cooking packages and trying to get to all the different platforms, it would probably take, you know, at least a couple of days. Right. So still, still keen in terms of speed of spinning something up and also working on, on lower powered hardware. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. So, um, we've got a couple of questions coming here from the audience. So I just wanted to, um, go back here and ask a couple of those. Um, we, somebody was asking, uh, well, I guess that I've just asked that question. Do you build everything in Unity? Um, so we just answered that one. Um, I think it was from a little earlier. Um, they're saying an all synthetic experience for the viewers. I'm not quite sure what that means, but um, uh, another question here, um, where do you see yourself going after VR? Is there a beyond VR in what you're doing? <laughs> yeah. It's, Tell us the uh, future. That's a great question. I mean, for me, it's about um, how do you mul multiply the sense of immersion and reduce the friction, which still to a certain degree will involve VR and AR, but I want it to be easier. I don't want it to be necessarily a big heavy headset. I want it to be sunglasses, especially getting to that point where VR and AR start to be more of a slider rather than uh, a binary. So the idea that you could be walking through an environment and I could be saying like, hey, there's an artist I really like and I heard they recently created their version of New York City and maybe I'm going to walk around New York City and see the AR version of their experience. But then there might be moments where I uh, want to see something that they made that is totally independent of New York City. So at that point, you kind of dim the real world and now you're in a fully synthetic, a fully uh, digital virtual environment. And it's funny because there's a little bit of that happening coming from two different directions. So you have VR headsets from Meta and HTC and, and um, Valve as well, where there's what we call pass-through, where there are cameras on the VR headset. And that is a little bit like AR because you can see through the cameras and see the real world. It's still very grainy. Um, Meta's coming out with a headset in October that will have color pass-through and be much, much sharper. So that is kind of a, an AR option for VR headsets. And then you have something like the Magic Leap 2, where the Magic Leap headset is an augmented reality headset that now has a dimming feature where you can actually do this sort of thing where you dim the real world and you're now losing the context of everything around you and you're an entire in an entirely uh, virtual environment. So I think before long, we'll see that merge. We might just call it XR. We might just call it our, our digital overlay, or we might call it the metaverse. Who knows? But I, I think it's too practical for that to not be the future. You know, I think our kids or grandkids at least will laugh at the idea that we used to go and stand in front of like a restaurant and then look at this little screen on our, you know, our phone and bend over and like Google the restaurant and be like, what are the reviews and what's the menu? And be looking at all that on this little tiny screen when in the future, of course, that will all be spatial and it will be contextual and you'll be able to walk down a street and see the reviews or whatever kind of information will be relevant to you positioned exactly where you need it to be to uh, to be most useful to, for your day. So there's an artistic side of this I'm very excited about. You know, I want to do theater where there is uh, a physical element on stage and there's an augmented reality layer for people who have the right hardware and there's a virtual reality version for people to join all over the world. But there's just a very base practicality to where a lot of this technology is going, which um, just makes me think it's it's inevitable. You know, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. How do you, how do you feel about um, in, implants, I'll say, like actually changing your biology with some kind of hardware? injecting something into you yeah into it's a great brain. question yeah because people i hear people say like i never want to be a cyborg and it's like we're kind of already cyborgs we rely on devices so much already they're just not physically attached to us though something like our phone or an apple watch may as well be um personally i'm still a little squeamish with the idea of of invasive uh surgeries but 
you know, this is something my wife and I talk about a lot. Like if we start to get older and we're like, oh, my hips and there's some injection or a microchip you can put in your waist that suddenly makes you feel like you're 20 or goes beyond that. And now you have super legs and you can jump 50 feet in the air and land without any problem. Like that's maybe kind of exciting to me if it can be safe. Um, my wife is like, no, never. We'll never, ever do that in a million years. I want super legs already. In fact, <laughs> if if anyone starts to make bionic legs, I think that's absolutely the name they should use. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to <laughs> jump onto buildings, just be like, oh, I'm, I work on the, the roof uh, of this building and then just jump right up to it. That'd be pretty cool. That's Elon Musk, if you're listening, can we have super <laughs> legs, please? Yeah. <laughs> um, so someone else asked a question here, um, which is something I, I also wanted to ask you, but you've already touched on it. I watched you make one from the desk behind you in New York. Um, Metahumans, uh, they're, they're now becoming customizable. Um, what, what somebody, the question here somebody's asking is, what improvements would you like to see in Metahumans and where do you see them going? Yeah, great question. So uh, the first thing that comes to mind is we found when we were setting up Ari as Scrooge in the production of Christmas Carol that LiveLink Face and even some of the other apps out there kind of like LiveLink Face, like Rococo has one and there's um, uh, Faceware and, and whatnot. We often were finding that the translation of mesh data uh, from a very talented and expressive actor something was being lost going over to a metahuman. And the way we solved for that is we actually set up different blueprints depending on the different characters. So for example, when Ari is playing Scrooge, all the blueprints are like much tighter and more like, and, and he's much more likely to be frowning. So you almost treat it like a mask, if you think of mask work in theater. And then uh, when he is uh, Charles Dickens, who's narrating the story, that's like a much more open and welcoming and friendly face. So we're multiplying a lot of the blend shapes in a different way to accommodate that. Um, it was cool. I'm glad we were able to do that. But of course, Ari is a, an incredibly talented actor and can do all of that naturally with his face. So I'm looking forward to, to metahumans and, and I'd also just say performance capture methods in general that really can start to get to a one-to-one -one translation of what a performer is doing and what that metahuman is doing. You know, I think we're already doing pretty well when it comes to things like the Uncanny Valley. Um, some metahumans, I think, can absolutely pass that test even in VR, but you want that expressivity to go beyond um, yeah, puppeteering and mask work and really just feel like that is the performer one-to-one -one inside uh, a virtual environment. Uh, Mesh to MetaHuman, by the way, is a new plugin that's that's very cool because you can take any 3D model of a face and translate that into a MetaHuman. Um, I think what a lot of people are excited to happen next with that is to be able to do that with a body. Take any 3D model of any character, especially if it's non-humanoid, and turn that into an easily rigged Metahuman, because the great thing about metahumans, for anyone who doesn't know, one of the great things is they all share the same skeleton. So whatever body shape or height um, or proportions you might see when you create a metahuman, at things like animations and and rigs for for doing animations can all be shared by them, which is really wonderful. You know, I used to do a lot with with ArcViz people, and it was such a hassle to try to have like a crowd of people that could all be you know looking like like they're interesting and uh and they i couldn't share animations between them so you know there's a lot about metahumans that makes that easier now so easier better looking make you forget about the fact that they're not real yeah and, and all this technology that's what you you kind of hit the nail on the head ed the, the future of all this is making you forget that it's technology at all just having all that fall away and, you know, to use the theater example, you're not in a VR headset watching a theater show. You are just watching a theater show and you're right there in the moment with the actor, disbelief suspended, and uh, you forget you're, you're using technology of any kind at all. Does all of this largely come back to theater for you? Like, is that kind of where you're looking to usually, yeah. like, apply it to in some way? The, the driving force for a lot of what I do nowadays goes back to an experience I had in London in 2008, where uh, I had a professor who had all the hookups, all the connections in London, and he was able to get us into theater and opera and dance and, and concerts uh, all across London. And we were always like in the front five rows of every performance. Wow. And I, I had never realized how much of a experience multiplier that is, you know, compared to being in that same venue, but in the nosebleed seats or just watching a 2D video stream of what's going on there. 
completely night and day. And I think about that semester all the time because that became the gold standard of what live performance can do. There were there were shows I saw um, in the West End and off the West End that completely changed my philosophy of life, you know, like those world-shaking cathartic moments that uh, is what the best art can do. And I want as many people in the world to be able to have art affect them in that kind of way. And a lot of that accessibility and a lot of that democratization will come from having the technology get to a point where it's ubiquitous and cheap and fast enough and frictionless enough that you can do something like put on sunglasses and instantly feel like you are having an experience like that. So I think we'll get there. It's just, it's just a question of how long it takes. Right. Uh, that's, that's really fascinating. Yeah. And it makes, it makes total sense. It's not, not that often those seats are thousand dollars or whatever they are. It's not, not that easy to get into those. Um, even if you can afford them, you can think twice about it. So, but very, yeah, really, really, really cool explanation. Um, so uh, we have somebody from the theater asking a, a question here. Somebody says, I'm a theater producer and VR filmmaker. What types of theater would or wouldn't work? Most of my work is in the musical and drag space with small casts, but I'd love to do a large musical. Is it possible or still difficult? Yeah, great question. Um, I'll say right away, probably the biggest challenge with all this right now is still latency. So with a musical, for example, ideally you want to have a big chorus, a giant ensemble, and they're all singing perfectly in time with each other and they're all on key. And that is very, very hard to do unless they are in the same physical room together. So, you know, there is a reality uh, where you can do something kind of like what um, Andy Serkis's company, The Imaginarium, did a few years back with a production that happened at, I think it was at the Old Vic in London. Um, it was a production called The Grinning Man. And basically what he did is hired out the entire cast and crew for a show, brought them all into their mocap studio, dressed everyone up in ping pong balls, did digital scans of them all, and captured that entire musical performance, like a live show. And now that is something that can be played back in all sorts of interesting ways. Um, but you'll notice, of course, that now the version of that that everyone can see, it's not live. Um, it doesn't necessarily uh, feel the same as, as what it was like in the actual show. But on the pro side, it's it's very accessible. They've done it on all sorts of different platforms. And you can do anything from like a tabletop Magic Leap experience to a fully immersive VR experience. So for me, the, the experiences that work the best are ones that demand a certain level of intimacy, a certain level of, of leaning in and getting close and and feeling like you're right there with another human being whether it's the performer or the other audience members and what i'm finding is is really fascinating about my studies in the space so far is my definition of liveness is shifting because of course it's wonderful to have that tightrope act of a live show where you at any moment something could go wrong someone could forget a line or they could trip and fall off the stage and something about knowing that any of those things are possible you know you don't really want them to happen but it does make the show um all the more exciting and with technology there's so many ways that technology can start to to mess that up and in fact back in 2018 when we were doing all these studies in um, in high fidelity looking at what kind of avatars work and what kind of performances work and what kind of audience performer relationship works, we often found ourselves gravitating towards improv actors, regardless of what the final version of the show was going to be, because we needed people who could respond to technology failing. Oh, the the Vive tracker on my arm just died. Uh, you know, now my character lost an arm or whatever. And they're, they're just kind of yes ending it and having fun with it. So like with Christmas Carol, for example, we found that it was becoming very complicated to try to make the entire show live. So we started to identify where were the key moments where liveness really counted, you know, the introduction, welcoming the audience in, giving them a sense of the space and the tone of what was going to happen, um, other key storytelling moments. But a lot of the other parts of the show we were able to do pre-recorded. And it's a little bit of a, a, a magic trick because you don't really see when it's shifting from live to pre-recorded. For anyone who knows Unreal Engine, you probably know that um, in, in Sequencer, you can have something that is possessable or spawnable. So we usually had that one uh, metahuman that was swapping, you know, clothes and faces and all that. 
and it was uh, a possessable metahuman. And when there wasn't a sequence playing in the scene, it was taking in all the live motion capture data and audio. And then when it became possessed by a sequencer, it would very smoothly slide into something that was pre-recorded. And we only had one live actor for that show, but we had so many people afterwards say, oh my goodness, those seven actors were incredible. They thought there were seven live actors the entire time. And there's an interesting debate there. Like, are we cheating? You know, is it bad that that we're tricking people into thinking that there's all those live characters when it actually isn't? I would lean more toward whatever makes it feel immediate and live and incredible. That's really all that matters. So, um, you know, going back to the question, uh, anything that wants to have any sense of liveness at all, that works incredible in VR. Um, and I'm talking a lot about things like metahumans where you need a lot of photorealism, but you don't need that in, in necessarily in VR for a show to be compelling. You want to have something work in VR that would be prohibitive to do in the real world for any number of reasons. Maybe you need to have all sorts of crazy special effects, or you need to bring together a cast and crew from around the world, or you have um, set design elements or something like that that you want to be able to float in the air in zero gravity. That's a much longer discussion, but there's all sorts of ways to identify why something would work even better in a virtual show compared to uh, a real show. And that's something I'm, I'm constantly having fun discovering. Oh, fascinating stuff. Thank you. Um, I know we're, uh, we're getting close to the end of the show, but uh, I wanted to ask you about your new podcast. <laughs> right. Uh, so a few days ago, uh, a friend of mine, Jacob Feldman, who works with the company CoreWeave, which is a, a cloud computing service that we use, him and I were talking about some of the things going on with Unreal Engine 5.1. And I've been playing a bunch with like Nanite and Lumen and VR, which I'm very excited about. And he's like, why isn't there a podcast where people literally just talk about Unreal Engine? And I said, well, it's probably because it's a very visual medium and it lends itself much more toward YouTube and Twitch than uh, audio. And he's like, I think we could do it. I think we could actually have an interesting podcast where we just talk about Unreal Engine things. So a few days ago, we recorded like a pilot episode and we just released it like moments ago while this this podcast was starting. So uh, we're very eager to hear what people think about this and what they would like from a primarily audio-based Unreal Engine podcast. Do you want to hear about new features? Do you want to hear about use cases? Do you want to hear about uh, acquisitions and what we think that will mean for the future of the company? Um, you know, I, I'm very curious to, to see if we can start to build a community around that and, and make that an interesting and useful uh, podcast for everyone. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing it myself. And we have posted the links into the live version of this podcast uh, chat. So it's out there. People, check it out. Give some feedback. Say, Tell Alex what you like and what you want to hear more of. And yeah, I hope, hope you all enjoy it. And yeah. I will definitely check it out myself. Yeah, it's Thanks called the, the Unofficial Unreal Engine Podcast, which su surprisingly wasn't taken. You know, you would think that someone did that like 15 years ago. <laughs> Well, well done for uh, jumping on it, and, and uh, yeah, again, look forward to to checking it out. Um, what what uh, we'll we'll end with a question of um, what are you most excited about in in the future of this uh, technology and way of creating? I'm excited about a future where anyone can create. Uh, narratives and stories that that change the hearts and minds of people from around the world. And it doesn't take a huge budget. It doesn't take uh, a giant studio full of millions of dollars of technology. The notion that we're at this point now where one person can create an entire film or an entire VR experience or an entire uh, piece of virtual architecture that goes back into this initial thing that drew me to architecture is like, I want to be the master builder who designs everything in the space. You can do that with virtual architecture. And the fact that we're now getting to a point where people can share and build these communities inside spaces where the same architectural psychology is there of encouraging certain kinds of behaviors and feelings with light and shadow and materiality, but not having to deal with any of the bureaucracy or budget problems that come with real buildings. I mean, there's other budget problems, you know, you have to think about polygon counts and that sort of thing. But I, I love the, the level of artistry that a single person is now able to create. Um, and I'm looking forward to a future where everyone feels like they have a way to express their innermost self and share that 
with the world and and start to to find their people and find their communities, whether it's in whatever ultimately becomes the metaverse or just through you know fun conversations like this. <laughs> I, I echo that as well. I, I look forward to that future as well. Um, had, had actually, what's one other question on that? How do you feel about AI's involvement in art? And I know there's a lot of a lot of that going on at the moment, and a lot of controversy around it. And do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm I'm thrilled and terrified by it. I mean, the the biggest tragedy to me is a lot of these AIs being built on the incredible hard work of artists from all around the world. You know, if you use something like uh, like Midjourney or, or Dali and it creates a beautiful image based on your input, it needed to do that by training on millions and millions of work from other artists. And those artists are never going to be compensated for their contribution to that algorithm. Um, so I wish to start that there was something like that that was able to somehow track um, all of the influences they're creating this work and everyone could be compensated for what they're doing. But um, it's kind of inevitable that we're here now and, and we see it already with images. We're, we're seeing it more with things like GPT-3 and, um, and text. We'll see it more with 3D models and ultimately, you know, all sorts of different experiences, VR experiences. Um, today, actually, I was trying a, a procedurally generated like Pokemon game that's generated just on a neural model of all the Pokemon games and creates the game as you're playing it. Um, so interactivity is even something that's getting there. So uh, the thing that, that I try to remind myself of is with these kinds of tools, all of these things are ultimately tools. It's up to us as, as artists to decide how to use those tools. And so in many cases, the, the positive outlook on this is there is less um, technical grinding required to make something happen. We're getting to a point where rather than creating as an act of sheer will, creating from nothing, a lot of our work is going to start to feel more like curating and being able to look at a selection of options and picking which one. So, you know, if I'm an architect and I've been designing buildings for the past 30 years, I'm going to get to that point where I can punch into a computer, um, hey, use my style, or it doesn't have to be my style, use Rem Coolhouse's style or something and generate a building on this site. And I don't think it's ever going to be perfect. To, I don't think you're ever going to be able to leave a computer alone to do this totally on its own. But we're kind of already getting to that point where you can get it maybe 80% of the way there. So then what you do is you look at 10 different options or you know six or whatever um, of, of the outputs based on the inputs you put in. And then you need to be able to identify, well, which one of those is best? And then taking the one that's best, how do you then refine it and take it the, the rest of that 20% to actually make it meaningful? And so it doesn't feel like, like a shortcut. You know, it doesn't feel like you're just trying to, to skip a bunch of steps because there are so many things that we learn as, as artists practicing our craft in, in all these different fields that is so crucial to making that uh, work well. So just because we're getting to a point where my kids who are, you know, five and seven years old could type something into a computer and get an incredible image that should still always mean a little bit less, I think, than someone who has spent 40 years refining, refining, refining. Um, cause I know we're reaching the end here. There's a quote from Picasso. I really like that I'll share now. And I usually have a slide in presentations where I show an image of P that Picasso painted of himself when he was 16. It's a self-portrait. It's very realistic. It looks great, looks like him, very photoreal. And then there's a self-portrait he did of himself when he was like 89. And there's like five lines to the thing. You know, it's very abstract. It's, it's kind of cubist. And uh, I usually pair those images with saying, learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. And what that means to me is that no matter how much quote unquote quality content you can be fed, it's still up to you to decide how to make it meaningful, how to make it actually good, and no amount of AI is going to completely automate that. Learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. I love it. Yeah. I, 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 I uh, had the pleasure of, uh, privilege of going around Dali's Teatro in, in Spain for two days. I, could, oh. I, I wanted more days than that, but I spent two entire days in that place. And I, I didn't know previous to going there that he was such a, a photo realistic painter originally and made these amazing commercial prints for Canon and a, bunch, a whole just there was the photo real I could, couldn't 
distinguished him from photograph and we all know him for the the wild melting clocks and crazy stuff that he did after that but a similar thing i feel there that yeah you have to you have to be able to master the the rules of the real world and then then you can go off and distort it and break the rules i think that's yeah it's a really great way to look at it well alex thank you so much for being here i feel like there's about another four or 40 episodes that we could probably do i've got so many more things that i want to talk about but maybe we could have you back sometime and and uh, it would be a pleasure it's been a total pleasure having you here tonight thank you so much um is there anything that you want to share anything else you want to share with uh, our listeners anywhere they can find more about out more about you or um, any of your companies or any of your work yeah uh, what a great chat first of all thank you ed this was a real pleasure and then uh the best place to find me is on twitter at ibrews i-b-r-e-w-s which was a <laughs> a handle i came up with when i was about 12 years old when i was like i have eyebrows and i should do something to comment on my prominent eyebrows and uh and then I was thinking like I for internet and brews like concoctions because I was making all this stuff on the internet. That's on Twitter. Um, my YouTube channel, that's usually where I post longer form experiments. That's also at iBrews. And then um, for the many, many talks I've given over the years, if anyone heard a, a seed of something that we touched on and then kind of flew by, there's a very good chance I've given like a one hour or two hour talk on it at some point. And you can find most of those on agilelens.com slash media. Thank you very much for, for sharing those. Hopefully we'll get some of those links out into the chat here as we are live, but uh, we'll certainly share more of those in the recording as we share this on YouTube. Um, but yeah, thank you again very much for your time. Um, this was a fascinating conversation and I, I look forward to our, our next one. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. And thank you also to our listeners. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for asking great questions. Um, look forward to another episode in two weeks. We'll be back with another great guest. Um, and if you enjoyed this, you can follow us at becomecgpro.com and in our Facebook group and find out more about what we do as a school um, as CG Pro. But yeah, thank you everybody for being a part of tonight and we will see you all again soon. Thank you.